0: Did you want something? Good time for a little snacky. Is that what you're telling me? Okay. Well. Oh, hello, everybody. I was just having a little conversation with the kitty with whom I have been uh, staying for the past 10 or 12 days. That's Callisto, and it turns out that she. Did want a snack, but she also wanted to tell me that I need to thank a few people who have become Patreon supporters. First of all, Carl, thank you very much. He's a new supporter, and we also had the most wonderful chat this week, and boy, this guy, he's pretty fabulous. It was really fun talking to him about many different subjects. And also, I would like to thank Laura for recommitting... As a supporter of the podcast, if any of you want to follow in those venerable footsteps, please go to Patreon.com/CounterMelody, and you too can become a supporter of the podcast. And boy, do we have a good one in store for you to take, and there will be a bonus episode. A word to the wise is sufficient, I believe. Isn't that right, Callie? <laughs> Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week, you will encounter me, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world. Thank you for joining me on that path. To now, this week's episode. Everybody, I've got a really special episode for all of you today. I am foregrounding and featuring a favorite soprano of mine, who on the 1st of September celebrated her 82nd birthday. So let us wish a very hearty, if belated, happy birthday to the great soprano Yulia Varadi. Here she is. In the year 1975. In one of her first commercial recordings, The Aria Il Tenero Momento from Mozart's Lucio Silla, Leopold Hager conducts the Mozart Table and Orchestra of Salzburg. <laughs> speak anon about the life and career of Yulia Varadi, but first let us just sample a few brief examples of her extraordinary artistry. Yes, of course, she was renowned as a Mozart singer, and we're going to hear more of that, but it might surprise some of you to know that her greatest, that her greatest European successes were indeed singing Verdi, and she covered the full range of Verdi roles at that. Here she is in 1992, live in Munich, under the baton of Giuseppe Sinopoli, singing the role of Leonora in Trovatore. This is the cabaletta Tu vedrai che amore in terra. Please note the exceptional technical control, and also her idiosyncratic fearlessness that accompanies that technical assurance. What this means is that an aria that is all too often just completely tossed away, in fact quite often cut, acquires a great deal of dramatic import. Thing I always note about Varadi is that the voice itself is immediately recognizable, at least to me. But one of the big reasons that I can always identify it is that way that she just throws herself into a part dramatically in a way that really finds a parallel only in a singer like Leonie Rieseneck or Hildegard Behrens. The incendiary quality in her artistic personality is that strong. I'm going to offer you an example. Here she is singing the role of Zenta in Wagner's Der Fliegende Holländer. Now, this is a very difficult role to carry off. It really is. You need somebody like Rieseneck or Varadi. Listen to the way that she leaps in after the chorus sings the choral refrain to Zenta's ballad. Her Zenta is a crazy woman. And you know what? Zenta is crazy. We need to have that for it to be a convincing impersonation. was live from Munich in February 1992, and the orchestra and chorus were conducted by Wolfgang Savalisch. Munich and Vienna were two of the home companies with which Yulia Varady was associated in the prime of her career, and we're going to hear a number of live recordings from I don't know if I have any from Wien, but we're certainly going to hear quite a few from München and elsewhere over the course of this episode. So fasten your seatbelts, friends. It's going to be a bumpy night in the best possible way. So, as I mentioned, Yulia Varady was born on the 1st of September, 1941, and I'm not going to do very well at pronouncing her name here. Maybe we should uh, draw on the expertise of our friends at Google Translate, yes? They never steer me wrong, you know. The English translation is coming up. Stock exchange, Julia. Okay, that is a little bit less uh, accurate, I'd say. She was born in Hungary in the town of
1: Nagyvárad,
0: which today is in Romania, and the town is known as Orádia. She began studying music at the age of six at the conservatory in Cluj, where she began as a violin student. And at the age of 14, she began studying voice as well. And later, she studied in Bucharest with the soprano Arta Florescu. Arta Florescu lived from 1921 to 1998 and was one of the leading sopranos at the National Opera in Bucharest. She was also a teacher and numbered among her students such Romanian divas as Vioreca Cortes, Eugenia Moldovianu, Maria Slatinaru, Leontina Varva, and Angela Georgiou. I believe I played an excerpt of her singing when I did an episode on the Romanian Verdi baritone Nikolai Herlea. but One Good Turn Deserves Another, and she was really an exceptional singer, so let's listen to just a little bit of her 1965 recording of Ebene Neandrolontana, and you hear certain similarities in her sound and in her approach to her high notes, for instance, which I find very interesting. Varadi originally trained as a mezzo-soprano, and it was as a mezzo that she made her debut with the opera in Cluj in 1962 in Gluck's Orfeo. She sang with that company until 1970 and quickly made the transition to soprano, and her roles included all three of the main parts in Mozart's Nozze di Figaro, Susanna Cherubino, and The Contessa. Other roles included Pamina in Die Zauberflöte, Desdemona in Otello, a role that became a calling card for her, Madame Butterfly, which we will sample later in the episode, Michaela in Carmen, Judith in Bartok's Gruberts Castle. So many, many different roles. She spent the 1970-71 season in Frankfurt, where her repertoire expanded to include Marguerite in Faust, Safi in Strauss's Der Zigone Baron, Elisabetta in Verdi's Don Carlo, and another role which became one of her most important, Don Elvira in Don Giovanni. Another Mozart role that she took on for the first time back in Cluj in the 1960s was Fiordiligi in Così fan Tutte. She had all of the characteristics that make for the greatest Fjordiligis. Steadfastness, yes, but also this borderline manic quality. An over-vehemence, almost, that makes you wonder if the lady doth protest too much. Now, after her season in Frankfurt, she began singing with the opera in Cologne, and it is from there that we have our first live recording of Yulia Varadi under the baton of the great Hungarian maestro Istvan Kertesz, who was also associated with the opera in Cologne at that point. This is a live performance of Comescolio, and you can hear how the audience goes completely mad, and with good reason, because they probably had never heard. A Fiordi Ligi like this ever before. Said that she was a supreme Mozartian. She took on and succeeded in all of the most difficult Mozart roles, including Elettra in Idomeneo, Vitellia in Clemenza di Tito, and also both noble ladies in Don Giovanni, both Elvira and eventually Don Anna as well. Although I believe that her preference was for Elvira and indeed one can hear why. This was the role that she sang in her sole appearances with the Metropolitan Opera. Those took place in the 77-78 season. She had been announced in the early 90s to return as Zenta, and I was all set to buy a ticket because I was living in New York at that point, and poof, she disappeared. But she did sing Don Elvira, and it was a memorable impersonation. She stood out among a fantastic cast, which included Joan Sutherland, Gabrielle Bacquier, James Morris. I mean, it was quite a lineup. We're going to hear Don Elvira's big number, Mitra but as I sometimes do, I'm going to piece together two different performances for you. The later one is the one that we begin with. That was an appearance in the summer of 1987 in Salzburg under the baton of Herbert von Karajan in what might have been his last production in Salzburg. I'm pretty sure that it was. It certainly was very late in his career and in his life. I play the restative from that performance. And then, when we get to the aria itself, Mitra di quell'alma ingrata, we switch to a live performance from Munich in the summer of 1973, which features the soprano under the baton of Wolfgang Sawallisch. Her female co-stars on this occasion were Margaret Price and Lucia Popp, so, man, I'm not sure we've ever topped that particular triumvirate. Idea, that Varadi was very tuned into her voice and its capabilities. I found a wonderful little clip from a documentary that appeared, I believe, in the late 1990s. She's speaking in German, so I'll play first what she says, and then for those of you who don't speak German, I'll tell you what she is actually saying.
1: Man sieht es, dass ich es sehr lieb habe dieser Stimme. Ich hab's lieb. <laughs> Ich spreche von die Stimme wie etwas, was außer mir ist. Immer, weil man muss das so betütteln und so drauf horchen und achten, als ob das außer mir wäre. Denn die Stimme ist selbstständig. Die macht sich selbstständig. Die Stimme sagt mir, was ich darf und wann ich es darf. Man muss nur lernen, drauf zu horchen so wie man lernt auf seinen seinen Körper zu achten und der Körper sagt einem oder, oder sagt nicht sondern schlägt Alarm und sagt Kinder da ist mit mir etwas nicht in Ordnung ich muss jetzt sie müssen aufpassen nicht und dann
0: wenn man das weiß und darauf achtet dann, dann ist alles in Ordnung dann geht alles Hand in Hand Körper Seele und alles she says that she very fond of her voice and she speaks about it as if it were something outside of herself And as such, it is an entity that requires very special care and that one must really tune in to what one's voice is telling one. It's an independent thing and it speaks to her and tells her what it can do and when she can do it. And it has been her object to listen to her voice as one has to learn to listen to one's body. And when the body or the voice tells oneself, okay, that's it, this is my limit, watch out. When one pays attention to that, then everything is, as we say in German, in Ordnung. Everything's going hand in hand, the perfect union of body, soul, and one's entire being. One thing that even those who admire Varadi often commented on with her singing was a somewhat careless approach to diction, both in Italian and in German. I like to think of it more as just her own quixotic, distinctive way of pronouncing these words. But this is something that we do not encounter, in fact, when we hear her singing in Hungarian. Not that I am an expert in Hungarian or Hungarian diction, but what I do hear is an enormous clarity and specificity in the way that she presents the texts that maybe we don't always encounter in either Italian or in German. And we're going to sample right now two songs by one of her most famous Hungarian countrymen, the composer Bela Bartok, we're going to hear two of his early set of songs, Opus Fifteen. Both of the texts are by a young woman named Clara Gombosi. Bartok was aged thirty-four, and Clara was fifteen, and the two of them carried on an affair for a year. In these days of cancel culture, let's just quickly pass over that 19-year age difference and the fact that she was no doubt below the age of consent, even in early 20th century Hungary. Three of the Opus 15 songs are settings of texts by Clara, and I have to say, some of these are highly charged, erotically speaking especially this first one, the title of which translates as My Love. My love is not the pale night moon which stares down into the water, but instead the hot noonday sun full of power and fire. We're also going to hear the second song of the group, whose title translates simply as Summer. I wait thirsting for breezes in the blinding blue vault of heaven, These are two performances recorded for radio broadcast in the year 1975. Varadi's accompanist here is none other than Aribert Reimann, who these days is an eminence grise in the German compositional world, and we shall certainly be encountering him also later in the episode. Another early role of Varadis was Antonia in Offenbach's Tales of Hoffmann, and I suspect that she probably sang it in German as Hoffmann's Erzählungen, as she does in this 1979 recording, where she is partnered with that fantastic jugendlich helden Siegfried Jerusalem, Heinz Wahlberg is leading the Münchener Rundfunk Orchestra, and this recording stems from the year 1979, when a few stray recordings of French and Italian repertoire were still being recorded in Germany in German translation. Her forays into the French repertoire were relatively few. Varadi also made an enormous impression in the Russian repertoire, specifically two of Tchaikovsky's big heroines, Tatiana in Eugene Onegin and Lisa in Pique Dame. In 1984, she sang the role of Lisa at the Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich, and her performance could set off a five-alarm fire. I'm sorry I keep on raving and going off using all this hyperbole, but honestly, this is one of the most thrilling performances I have ever heard. We also heard it just now in the Antonia, these flashes of divine madness. She's not afraid to go there, and man, am I grateful for that. The conductor was the Lithuanian Algis Juraitis, who lived from 1928 to 1998. It's significant that Lisa, the heroine, is at the very end of her life. After the next scene with Hermann, the antihero, she casts herself into the river and drowns. The Hermann in this performance was the Russian tenor Vladimir Atlantov, also a famous Otello, and this just allows me to tell you briefly that on the bonus episode this week, I will be featuring Varadi and Atlantov in the scene that directly follows on this aria. And if you thought Varadi's performance of the aria was something special, wait until you hear this duet. It just made my hair start on fire, practically. And also, because, as I mentioned, Desdemona was another of her calling card roles, we'll also be hearing a fantastic excerpt from the love duet from act 1 of Otello with Varadi and the tenor Carlo Cossutta under the baton of Carlos Kleiber in the United States i know that Varadi is really considered what they call a Mozart Strauss singer but she sang relatively little Strauss in the theater in fact her only two roles that she sang on stage were Arabella and the Componist in Ariadne of Naxos, but she also frequently appeared singing the vier de Lieder of Strauss, and she also recorded major roles in Frau ohne Schatten and Feuersnot, Note, neither of which she appeared in on stage. In addition to this, she frequently programmed the Lieder of Richard Strauss. And in 1992, she made a recording of Mozart and Strauss' Lieder with the pianist Elena Bashkirova, a.k.a. Mrs. Daniel Baronboy. This is a setting of Heinrich Heine, of a poem called Frühlingsfeier, Celebration in Spring. This is the sorrowful joy of spring, the blossoming maidens, the wild throng rush, with streaming hair and anguished cries and bared breasts, Adonis, Adonis. Night falls by the light of their torches. They seek here and there in the wood, which with confused laughter echoes with weeping and laughter and sobbing and screaming, Adonis, Adonis. The wondrously handsome youth lies pale and dead on the ground, the blood stains all the flowers red, and plaintive sounds fill the air. Adonis! that, I think I'm going to address the elephant in the room, and that is the spouse of Yulia Varadi, whom she met in the early 1970s when they were both appearing together in Puccini's opera Il Tabarro. It's the German baritone Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau, whom many people love and who is often upheld as a prime example of the mastery of lido singing. The two were devoted to each other and were married in 1977, and remained so until his death in 2012. One of my primary goals in this episode is to isolate Varadi artistically and celebrate her own achievement apart from that of her husband. They were in many ways to my ear musical opposites. It's well known to my listeners that I'm not a big fan of his singing, but I adore her, and so it's not difficult for me to simply consider her achievement apart from his. And here I really must repeat the oft-stated adage that taste is simply that, an individual's response to work that is put out there by various kinds of artists. And if I am not a big fan of Fischer-Dieskau, so be it. I hope that you won't hold it against me, and I hope that you will be able to appreciate Madame Vardi on her own merits. One of their most monumental successes took place in the summer of 1978, when they both sang in the world premiere of Aribert Reimann's opera, Lear, based on the Shakespeare tragedy, King Lear, translated into German by Klaus Henneberg. Reimann and Fischer-Dieskau had been discussing the possibility of this opera as far back as 1968, and I just discovered yesterday in doing research that in 1961, Fischer-Dieskau approached Benjamin Britten with the possibility of composing a Lear opera for him to sing. But immediately upon its premiere, the 9th of July, 1978, Reimann's opera established itself as one of the towering 20th century operatic masterpieces, and the personal triumph for both Fischer-Dieskau and for Varady, as well as the other singers, which included Helga Dernesch, David Knudsen, Colette Laurent, and such venerable singers of the previous era as Hans Wilbrink, Georg Pascuda, Richard Holm, and Hans Günther Nöckau. We're going to hear one of Cordelia's solo moments, which takes place very near the end of the opera. She and her father have both been imprisoned, and she is about to be put to death. But instead of self-pity, she extends all of her love and her concern toward her father. Odelia has by far the most beautiful and lyrical music in the entire opera, which is one of the loudest experiences that I've ever had in the opera house when I saw it at the Nederlandse Opera many years ago now. But it was also one of the most extraordinary things that I've ever seen. And if you've ever seen the video of the performance or photos even, from the Ponell production in Munich. It is a visually as well as a musically overwhelming experience. This recording is of the world premiere performance. Here's another thing about Yulia Varady. Because of both the intensity of her personality, as well as her incredibly solid technical grounding, she was able to sing roles where you just think she couldn't possibly do that, could she? And then she does. I'm thinking of such roles as Zenta, or even more so, Abigail in Nabucco, with which she had an enormous success at the Opéra de Paris in 1995. She sometimes seemed as if she were operating at the very edge of her resources, but she never once passes over into technical desperation. An enormous part of her impact is the fact that she sings all of the notes, and she does it in her own way and without compromising musical values. Even in roles like Abigail or Odabella in Attila, which she sang in concert in 2001, there's this thrill that goes with hearing somebody really pushing at the edges and never falling apart. Let's listen to the opening scena of Odabella in this live concert performance of Attila from Wien in March 2001, one of her final operatic performances. In fact, by this point she had already retired from staged performances of opera. Varadi was always a singer full of surprises. I think one of the most satisfying of those surprises was her impersonation of the title role of Puccini's Madama Butterfly. There's something imperious about Varadi, in spite of the fact that she was only 1.6 meters tall, or 5'3, for those of us in the US. Certainly her petite stature would have made her a visually very compelling butterfly, and we're going to hear an extended scene from Act Two of the opera, live in Munich in the year nineteen eighty. Here Varadi is heard under the baton of the Italian maestro Francesco Molinari Pratelli, and her sharpness here is the baritone Raimund Grumbach, a kammersänger who sang with the Bayerische Staatsoper and lived from 1934 to 2010. We begin the scene where Sharpless has been fruitlessly trying to impress upon Butterfly that while Pinkerton may be returning to Nagasaki, he has a new wife and he has no intention of resuming their relations. The scene continues with Butterfly revealing... That she has borne Pinkerton's child, and that she would rather die than go back to being a geisha. Another Verdi role that Varadi excelled in, and that might surprise you, is Violetta in La Traviata. What I like about her impersonations about characters like Violetta, like Butterfly, is that these women have a backbone, damn it, and they are not shrinking violets. They possess a great deal of resolve, determination. And the pathos in her impersonations of these parts comes from the fact that forces are operating from the outside against the strength and resolve of these characters. So let us listen to a live recording from the Deutsche Oper Berlin in April 1984 of The Cabaletta at the end of the first act of La Trafiata. As Alfredo, we hear Italian tenor Franco Tagliavini and the conductor is Jesus Lopez Cobos. I was not expecting that E-flat at the end and it was such an exciting surprise. I'm so delighted that you all joined me today for this belated birthday tribute to the gorgeous Yulia Varady. Now it's been a very heavy episode, a <laughs> lot of intensity, but I thought that we would end on a lighter note. This is a 1982 recording that Varadi and her husband made together with Neville Mariner and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, of two of Johann Sebastian Bach's secular cantatas. This is the second big aria of Lieschen, the errant daughter in Bach's coffee cantata. Lieschen's father, Schlendrian, has just told her that unless she is willing to give up coffee, he will never consent to let her marry. And Lieschen weighs her options, and she says, Hmm, if by giving up coffee I could have a lusty lover to go to bed with at the end of the day, I think I could very well give up coffee i My dear friends, keep the song in your heart.